This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. No state has experienced more school reform than Florida. School accountability, merit pay for teachers, school vouchers, tax credit programs, charter schools, the country's first virtual learning school, and much more. Gains in achievement in Florida are larger than in almost any other state in the country. Florida has jumped from the bottom of the pack among the states to well above the middle tier. And within Florida, Dade County, which includes the city of Miami, has compiled an enviable record of its own. In a recent paper on the Miami schools, Ron Matis, Director of Public and Policy Affairs for the organization Step Up for Students, has taken a sweeping look at the broad changes that have occurred within the Dade County school system. And I'm very pleased to have Ron Matis with me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Ron, for joining me. Uh, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Ron, so all these things sound amazing. Uh, What would you say are the two or three most important factors that help to explain uh, what uh, is happening in Dade County? Sure. Well, there's definitely a number of, of different things that all combine together. I think the standout things for me are how much the district has embraced choice. Uh, even in a choice-rich state like Florida, you have a lot of districts that have resisted that and continue to resist it. Miami-Dade is not one of those districts. It's done the complete opposite, so that's a huge factor. Um, Dynamic and stable leadership, I don't think there's any doubt that Superintendent Carvalho is a special superintendent. He's been there for 10 years. Alberto Carvalho, is that the... Yes, sir, that's right. right? That's right. Uh, He's been there for 10 years now, which is a a remarkable length of time for a big city superintendent. Well, he almost went to New York City, did he not? Uh, He almost did. He was on the verge of going, and um, he... I know caused a lot of heartache in New York City because he ended up turning that down, but the people in Miami-Dade turned out in force, uh, let him know how much they did not want him to leave, and ultimately he said that emotional tug kept him there. So he stayed in Miami-Dade, and people there couldn't be happier. Well, you know, uh, superintendents turn over every three years. That's sort of a rule in, in American urban education. He's uh, defied that rule now for the last 10 years. Uh, he, he's de- defi- not only defined that rule, but I think he's more popular than ever. He, he, he did not um, get a honeymoon in the beginning because he started off in the midst of a crisis, you know, financial and in some ways academic crisis. And he lifted the district out of that and, you know, has continued to make gains, continued to notch, notch successes build on that momentum, uh, and one of the culminations of that is they had a big uh, property tax hike referendum uh, in the fall. Uh, 71% of the voters voted yes. It was devoted almost entirely to increasing teacher pay, so people there couldn't be happier. The school board couldn't be happier. The unions could not be happier. Um, He's unified his district in a way that seems remarkable to me compared to other big districts in America. How do you get a big city school (laughs) district to vote by 71% in favor of a tax increase? I think it's because he has demonstrated time and again that they are, in fact, uh, the kids in that district 
improving academically at a pretty good clip relative to other big districts. Um, you know, I don't even know to, where to begin. I mean, you know, for the first time ever last year, Miami-Dade was an A district in Florida. You know, not only schools, but districts get grades in Florida. And Miami-Dade got an A for the first time ever. There aren't too many big urban districts which have all the challenges um, that they do that get A grades in Florida. And Miami-Dade would be far and away the most demographically challenging district to get an A. It has not had an F school in two years. Uh, 20 years ago, it had 20-something. It has none, has not had one. Well, maybe it, the rules have changed. The rules have changed. That's a, that's a very important thing to bring up. The, the rules for school grades do occasionally change, you know, um, but there are plenty of other big districts that continue to have F schools, and Miami-Dade isn't one of them. So I, I think it, there's more to it than just the rules changing. I think, actually, there is progress in student achievement. So it, you're saying, I, I interrupted you because you said that there were uh, three or more things, and one was uh, a lot more choice than uh, they've embraced choice to uh, uh, excellent leadership, but I interrupted you at that point. Uh, what, what were the other things you had in, in mind there? Well, another big thing that immediately comes to mind is they have also um, they've also learned how to intervene and support their most struggling schools, I think, better than other districts. Um, you know, the state does have its accountability system, which requires, you know, schools that are in um, that have been struggling, you know, for X number of years have X number of things done to, um, to lift them out of that. And Miami-Dade has, has gone beyond that. So they um, cast a wider net as far as which schools they deem to be struggling. So they, they go beyond what the state's definitions are. And then they offer more supports and more resources uh, with more urgency, frankly, than I think um, the state mandates and other districts carry out. So, I mean, there are probably 80-something schools that are in that um, Miami-Dade umbrella of struggling schools. They call them their most fragile schools, and they have this office called the uh, Education Transformation Office, another Carvalho creation, which oversees that. And I think they're pretty good at what they do. This portfolio model is sort of what people say Miami has. So, you know, how, how does a portfolio model work? Well, I'm going to have to plead a little bit, a little bit of ignorance there. Uh, as I understand it, there are multiple variations on the portfolio model, um, which require you know somebody to essentially be a gatekeeper for what quality schools are, and I guess that's sort of true and then not true for Miami-Dade. I mean, on the one hand, the district does have a portfolio of choice, which encompasses a ton of district choice programs and you know they've really gone gangbusters with that but they don't they're not the gatekeepers for the most part for all the other options that are on the landscape uh, Miami-Dade has 130 charter schools now they are the authorizer so they did have to give the okay for these schools to appear um, but these schools set up where they want to you know it's not like they were done in coordination with the district and then 
there are more than 400 private schools down there that participate in choice programs, uh, predominantly the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship, but these other scholarship programs we have down there too. And they're not subject to any gatekeeper. So I'm not sure exactly which version of a portfolio model would be uh, applied to Miami-Dade. It, it, it does have control of its portfolio of schools, but there are all kinds of non-district schools that do their own thing. Well, do these non-district alternatives, whether it's the private schools or these charter schools, are they having an impact on the district, even though there's no coordination, explicit coordination? Do you see the effects of competition on what's happening inside uh, the Miami-Dade County School District? I think there's no doubt about that, and I think it actually cuts both ways. But certainly having hundreds of non-district options has forced the district to move with more urgency, to be more creative and innovative, to be more responsive to parents, to teachers as well, I think, to, to maybe a lesser extent, but um, an extent that's growing. I mean, if the district doesn't do the right thing, parents down there have options, lots and lots of options and more every day to go someplace else. So I have no doubt that the district has become as responsive and creative as it has been because it's faced with that competition. Um, I don't know if you're a baseball guy, but I can, I'll throw out an analogy. Everybody in Boston <laughs> is a baseball guy. You can't live in Boston without being a baseball well, guy. Well, then I'm going to really uh, love this opportunity to troll the Red Sox here for a second. So, and this is how much I've been drinking the, uh, the Kool-Aid in Miami-Dade. I think, and this is half-baked, so, you know, this analogy might not work, but I, I think... Um, Miami-Dade is to big urban school districts what the Tampa Bay Rays are to Major League Baseball right now. The Rays last year, as you know, won 90 games, barely missed out on the playoffs, and the last time they faced the Red Sox last year, they swept them in a three-game series by a combined score of 24-5. They did this even though they had either the lowest or the second lowest payroll in baseball, half the average payroll, a third of the Red Sox payroll, and yet they skunked the Red Sox. In the same way, and, and, and by the way, <laughs> they, they are leading the division right now. Exactly. Much to the chagrin of the Red Sox fans here in Boston. <laughs> That's absolutely true, and with, a, with an even uh, lesser payroll than last year. Last year their payroll was like $70 million, this year it's $60 million. Okay, now you've got to get the education pretty soon here. We can't stand this topic <laughs> much longer. Okay, well, so in the same way that the Rays have been forced to compete and do more with less because they're in the American League East and they have to deal with the Red Sox and the Yankees, Miami-Dade has had to do more with less and arguably the most competitive state for school choice in America. They've had to find ways to be creative and innovative and disruptive or, or get eaten by the competition. And what's really neat about Miami-Dade and why I've drank some of the Kool-Aid is they actually seem to have done that. They actually have come up with their own plan, which they own, which is so important. Nobody forced them to do what they're doing. They came up with the plan. They owned it. They're executing it. They're having some success with it. 
they seem to be having fun doing it. Um, that's another way where I, they, I feel like they're like the Rays. I mean, the Rays, you watch them, they're a fun team to watch, not only because they're having success, but because they seem to be having fun doing it. Um, so anyways, that's my, that's my analogy for the day. So uh, that, that's a, a great analogy. Uh, but, you know, I've just been thinking about, uh, and we, we've been talking about the Milwaukee situation where you have a lot of choice. You've got a voucher program that's not unlike the tax credit program in Florida. You've got charter schools uh, that are not coordinated with the district. And everybody says that it's just a war between everybody and the children are suffering in the process. So why isn't all this competition leading to total warfare with people on opposite sides undermining one another? Uh, how, how does Miami-Dade get beyond that? Well, that is a really good question. and. I I wish I could come up with a good answer. I mean, I was thinking about that Milwaukee analogy uh, comparison today, and I'm not sure why Milwaukee would be at war and Miami-Dade does not seem to be. Now, that's not to say that there aren't tensions down there, because there are. Um, you know, one thing that came up recently is that tax referendum um, that led to the teacher pay hike in Miami-Dade. Well, that money has not been shared with charter schools. Uh, there was actually uh, a little bit of a kerfuffle in the legislative session with some lawmakers wanting to mandate that uh, district referenda be money be shared with charter schools and be applied retroactively because of Miami-Dade. And ultimately, they didn't go that far. They decided going forward, the money's going to have to be shared. But, you know, we're talking $7,000, $8,000 um, salary supplements for uh, teachers making median, median salaries in Miami-Dade, you know, $46,000 a year or something. So this is going to put the charter sector at quite a bit of disadvantage for the four-year lifespan of this tax referendum. So there's some tensions there. Because the best teachers are going to be tempted to go into the district schools from the charter schools. I would think they would be. You know, it's they're going to have to individually weigh that trade-off of whether, you know, having that more freedom that might come with a charter school is worth giving up for that extra money in the district. Um, and I don't know how that's going to shake out. And that's going to be a fasc fascinating thing to watch going forward. But, you know, that, that sore spot that came up um, with this referendum money is not the norm down there. They do generally have, I, I wouldn't say they get along, but it's not hostile. And, and I'm not sure why that is. Um, part of me thinks maybe it's because the, the charters down there are, are a homegrown entity. You know, it's not like we have a bunch of charters coming from elsewhere down in Miami-Dade. The main operator, Academica, is very much a homegrown operation. But it's a for-profit charter management organization. And for-profits around the country have, re have in encountered tremendous hostility again and again, but, but not in Dade County. Why isn't there more hostility to the for-profit charter school that is, uh, it's a big part of the landscape, right? It's Absolutely. Uh, 
Well, that's another good question that I don't know the answer to. Uh, perhaps it's because they're very effective. You know, they have a good track record. They have some schools down there that are amazing. They have schools that, you know, routinely make the U.S. News uh, top schools list. So if you look at the top 20 schools in Miami-Dade, or top 20 schools in Florida, rather, last year 11 of them were in Miami-Dade, seven were district magnet schools, four were charters, three were Academica. This year, the new list just came out, and I know we got to take all these lists with a grain of salt, but the new list just came out. 13 of the 20 top schools in Florida, Miami-Dade, 10 of the, this time were mag, district magnet schools, three were charters. So, you know, there's some high-performing charters down there. Academica uh, makes up the lion's share, I would say. And so maybe people don't know that they're for-profit. Maybe they shrug at that. I think parents are practical, and they want good schools, and they don't care about the labels. That's been my experience over the, you know, uh, past 15 years as a reporter and now as a guy who works for Step Up. They don't really care about labels. They just want a good, safe, high-quality school for their kids. And many of the charters down there do that, Academica charters in particular. And the same with the private schools down there. People forget when they get, um, you know, in a tizzy about vouchers and tax credit scholarships that many of these private schools are neighborhood schools too. They are community institutions. Um, you know, I talked in my presentation a little bit about a Catholic school I visited down there um, a few months back. That Catholic school has been there 70 years. It's been there longer than most of the Miami-Dade schools. It's been a neighborhood school forever. Um, now the neighborhood has changed, you know, the demographics of the school have changed, um, but appreciation for the school hasn't, and it's very much a community anchor as it has been for 70 years. So maybe that plays into why it's not the Wild West down there. It feels very organic to me and homegrown. It doesn't feel like war. It feels like everybody um, has agency and some freedom to pick what they think is best, and um, it's just not hostile. Well, you know, <laughs> going back to Milwaukee again, the, the, the school board is constantly being taken over by one side or another, Got constant fluctuation and bringing in new superintendents, and that's happening in a number of school districts around the country. I'm not, I don't want to just pick up Milwaukee. That's, that's sort of the norm out there. So what's happening at the school board level because superintendents are a product of the school board? I think by and large, maybe more than by and large, they are very satisfied with the direction of the district and the superintendent. I mean, they've won one accolade after another over the past 10 years. Um, Broad Prize in 2012, um, College Board AP District of the Year in 2015 or 14. Um, superintendent Carvalho was the Florida Superintendent of the Year in 2013, National Superintendent of the Year in 2014, um, Urban Superintendent of the Year last year. Uh, again, you know, A-rated school, no F schools for two years in a row. What school board wouldn't be happy with that? Um, big raises for your teachers, what union wouldn't be happy with that? Um, I have to admit that, you know, I, 
I live 200 miles away from uh, Miami-Dade, and so I'm not totally on top of what their um, school board dynamics might be, but I do certainly get the impression that they are all rowing in the same direction, and they're very satisfied with uh, the district's sustained success to date. So the portfolio within the district model that they have, can you describe how that works a, a bit? Do because some people say this is going to lead to a situation where you get a lot of stratification among the schools and so the, uh, the parents who care the most about their children's education are going to get all the best schools in the district and those who aren't as engaged are going to be left with the bottom of the barrel. You know, I've heard that before and I guess it remains to be seen how it plays out in Miami-Dade. I mean, there are certainly lots of parents uh, leaving neighborhood schools for choice options, whether it's those charters or private schools, or more likely nowadays, you know, one of the district magnets or career academies or what have you. Um, I know they're showing no signs of slowing down, um, and, and I think they, they see that as part of the recipe for success. They want to give parents what they want, and they want to create compelling programming to keep the parents there, to keep the students engaged. Um, at the same time, they do have, for lack of a better term, you know, a safety net for those fragile neighborhood schools where, where kids are leaving. Um, they do put a lot of resources and interventions and supports there. They're not forgetting about those schools. And I think, you know, the rise in um, state test scores and NAEP scores, the fact that there are no F schools for two years in a row, shows that something is working there as well. Now, will it continue to work long term? I don't know. Um, I have heard the superintendent say that he's not done with choice, though. He wants to keep going until maybe every school is a choice school. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I hope that answers your question. That's a great question. I, I don't know how it's going to shake out ultimately. Some people say it's really what's happening at the state level that counts, not so much what's happening inside the county because uh, Jeb Bush was there. He introduced all these reforms. He created a supportive environment for choice. Uh, he made education reform the issue in Florida. How would you assess the relative importance of the state and the local school district in producing this result? I think they're both important. So. The way I look at it, Governor Bush changed the operating system for public education in Florida. He reset the rules. You know, it was top-down accountability with things like school grades and then bottom-up choice. Uh, more charters, he tried the vouchers, tax credit scholarship, all the above. And he reset the rules. And I'm glad you brought that up because that too has been stable for 20 years now. You know, um, Governor Bush not only installed those changes, he made sure to put mechanisms in place to make sure that they were sustained. So 20 years with the same operating system um, is a pretty important thing to consider. And so everybody has to operate by those rules. But given that, districts still have, I think, a lot of leeway by which to operate on that operating system. There is a lot of variation from district to district in Florida. Some districts um, are very reactive. 
and they criticize the system. 20 years in, they're still criticizing school grades and school choice. Miami-Dade is the exception, and I think Miami-Dade shows that school districts actually still have a lot of freedom and a lot of agency to do some neat things and move the needle and do it in a way where they own it, which is psychologically so important. They, they came up with a plan, they owned it, and now they're executing on it. Um, so to me, Miami-Dade shows that districts actually can do a lot if they want to. Now, of course, Miami-Dade has the advantage of being Miami. I mean, it's a prosperous <laughs> part of the United States. It's, it's doing well. Um, other parts of the country, whether it's Cleveland or Detroit or Pittsburgh or Milwaukee, uh, you know, there's lots of economic challenges that go far beyond the school system. So is this, you know, feel-good story due basically fundamentally to the fact that Florida is a prosperous, growing thriving part of the U.S. economy. I, I wish I knew more about what was going on economically in Miami-Dade to give you a great answer to that question. I, my hunch is that's not all there is to it. I mean, Miami-Dade still is a, a very demographically challenged school district. So I think it's something like 50% of the residents of Miami-Dade are foreign-born. 70% speak a language other than English at home. 20% of the kids in the district are ELL. Uh, about 70% are FRL. Uh, 90 F FRL free is... Free and reduced price lunch. Yep. 93% um, are black or Hispanic. So, you know, those aren't the most favorable demographics in the world. You know, those are some challenging kids. Um, and so Miami-Dade has been able to move the needle with them in a way that other districts have not. Um, There's certainly other districts in Florida who don't have uh, demographics anywhere near as challenging as that who are not getting the sustained gains that Miami-Dade is. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's just the economy. I think there's something about the district and its uh, plan of action that is also playing a role. Well, Ron, this is a fascinating story. It's, it's a story that makes you feel like there's a real opportunity for moving forward in this country when it comes to our school system, and we need those kinds of stories. we got to hang on to those kinds of stories, so thank you for sharing that with me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Ron Matus, uh, Director of Public and Policy Affairs for Step Up for Students. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern Time.